Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. I hope you're all doing very well out there, and I thank you again for your continued uh, listening to this podcast. I got to be honest with you, when I started doing this podcast, I didn't know if anybody would listen. But uh, Jake, who gets control of the board on these podcasts and is doing a great job of getting them out there, said, don't worry, they'll listen. Uh, And uh, I'm hoping that it's uh, entertaining enough for you to keep you uh, convinced to listen. And by the way, I just want to let you know that if you think uh, you got some hot topics or something you'd like to learn about or something that you think would make a great topic for a podcast, I think we've been doing it long enough and we got a good following that I can make sure it meets your needs. So if you got one of those crazy questions out there that you want to uh, that you want to send in, just go to the website uh, or the either dlgdagolawgroup.com or go to the DLG Learning Center and in the notes section, in the comment section, just send us an email and uh, we'll be happy to track something down. So a lot of times what happens in the office here is that we get calls from police departments all over the country with crazy questions. You know, mo- what I really enjoy is most of my conversations start with uh, hypothetically and they give me a fact pattern and they ask me what I can do and how I can do it and that kind of stuff. If you got that same uh, desire, listen, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We want to make sure that these podcasts are valuable to you and for you. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a new Supreme Court case. On April 4th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court dropped a new case called Thompson versus Clark. And it's really not the greatest case for us, I'll be honest with you. So the Supreme Court's dropped four cases since, uh, well, four including the one in June in 2021, but three in this cycle so far that are specific to law enforcement operations. As you remember, uh, just a quick review in case you need to go back and listen to a podcast again. An important podcast would be the Lombardo case the Supreme Court dropped in June 28, 2021 on the use of force, very important case. Then we had two qualified immunity cases that dropped on October 18th, 2021. Uh, Again, very important cases. There are podcasts on that that you can get back and you can listen to. And the next one to drop in the cycle here is the case we're going to talk about today, Thompson versus Clark. And the purpose of this case, uh, or the underlying issue in this case, is a Fourth Amendment claim under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 for malicious prosecution. And and before I get into this a little bit, I'm going to give you what the case is about. But then I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little history on malicious prosecution. So malicious prosecution, also known as false arrest, uh, you know, for the for the, the legal jurisprudence that has been in the issue of malicious prosecution over the, over the years, uh, the Supreme Court held in this case that a plaintiff is not required to show that the criminal prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of in- innocence. This means that the plaintiff need only show that the prosecution ended without a conviction. And I know you're a little confused, so, so just stay with me for a second. What you need to know about the law of malicious prosecution or false arrest is that in the past, to maintain a Fourth Amendment claim under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 for constitutional deprivation, the plaintiff must demonstrate, among other things, and there's four elements to a false arrest claim. The four elements to a false arrest claim are one that uh, we... The one, you have to initiate a proceeding against the plaintiff. So that would be, you know, you arrest the individual. Number two, which is the issue in this case, is that the court said that the underlying criminal incident must resolve to the benefit of the plaintiff. That's been led to a lot of interpretation over the years. What does 
what does to the benefit or most favorable to the plaintiff mean? A lot of times, um, you know, the very easy one, the very easy allegation is that the prosecutor dismisses the case with no issue whatsoever, or the other one is that the case is tried and a not guilty verdict is issued as a result of the case. So those are the easy uh, definitions of obtaining a favorable termination on the underlying criminal prosecution. From there is a tremendous amount of legal history, specifically on the issues of, well, if I take a nolo contendere or you pay a fine or you do community service, does that, does that criminal prosecution terminate in favor of the plaintiff? So again, and I'm going to go over this for a little bit before I jump into the case to give you some background. The element number one is that you must initiate a proceeding against the plaintiff. So that means we arrest them. Element number two for false arrest is that the plaintiff, that the, the uh, underlying criminal incident must end favorably to the plaintiff. Number three is that there must be a finding of probable cause or a lack of probable cause. And number four, there must be malicious intent in the application of bringing criminal charges against the plaintiff. These four elements make up the, uh, make up the elements of a civil liability for false arrest. Why is this such a significant problem? Well, I know one thing about being in the criminal justice system for 30 years, and that is it's broken. And what I mean by that is that you go out and make an arrest, and what happens to that arrest after is not your issue, right? You send it to the prosecutor's office, and if you're anything like what my FTO told me 30 years ago, he said, listen, Daigle, don't pay attention to your cases, right? Go out there, do your job, make an arrest based on probable cause, but don't pay attention to your cases because, you know, the cases are going to get disposed of. They're going to be nollied away. They're going to be negotiated. And if you're a really energetic cop and you're watching your cases get nollied away or negotiated away or even dismissed, boy, that makes you think, well, wait, this guy was in, it took me longer to write the report than it did for this guy to be prosecuted. What am I doing this for? Why am I wasting this much time? Those issues are real issues. And so, because the criminal justice system is broken, as in said, that broken aspect starts at the prosecutorial application, we can't control what happens to our criminal cases after they leave our, our ability to find probable cause. So when I'm in the academy with the recruits and teaching false arrest, I tell them, listen, just do your job, go out there and find probable cause, make sure it's solid probable cause. And if it's solid probable cause, what happens after that, don't worry about that. One thing people don't talk about is the fact that in order for someone to bring a civil litigation against you for false arrest, that the, the prosecutor has to dismiss the case or the case has to come with favorable termination. And that's the exact issue that's here today. So let me just give you a little bit of history on false arrest and, and false detention or false imprisonment. Let me give you the general principles, just so you have an understanding. I don't want to get too deep, but it's, I think it's really necessary with this case because there is a very uh, important lesson to be learned here. And we don't teach about this very often because it doesn't come up very often. So in action for false arrest or detention, what we would call false imprisonment may be brought under 42 USC section 1983 for violation of fourth and 14th amendment. We know, and you know from your history, the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable seizures of a person. We know that the Supreme Court case of California versus Hoderi D 
the court reaffirmed that a person has been seized within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment if in view of all the circumstances surrounding the incident, a reasonable person would have believed that he was not free to leave. Now, the Supreme Court identified the requirements for a false arrest cause of action under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 in a Supreme Court case called Wallace versus Cato. The false arrest is a species of false imprisonment. False imprisonment is unlawful detention without legal process. The cause of action accrues immediately following the false arrest, and the arrestee may file suit at any time, but the statute of limitation begins to run only when the false imprisonment ends. In Wallace, the court noted that the plaintiff had claimed that his entire period of incarceration incarceration after conviction was caused by the original false arrest and the coerced confession that he made as a result of the arrest. The court noted that at common law, such a claim would be attributable to a tort other than false imprisonment, but did not decide whether such a claim for consequential damages might be maintained under Section 1983. One of many to consent to accompany the police into custody and waiving Fourth Amendment rights, even where the police have no constitutional basis for making an arrest, the court is not bound by the subjective belief of police officers that a person has consented to custody. However, but looks to objective factors to determine if the custody was truly consensual. There are two categories of police seizure for law enforcement purposes under the Fourth Amendment, which you know. Full arrest and a less intrusive detention, which we call investigative stops, right? Arrests are not constitutionally valid in the absence of probable cause. The police may also seize a person for reasons other than law enforcement in the exercise of their reasons other than law enforcement in the exercise of their community caretaking role to ensure the safety of that person or the public. The issue that we're going to look at here as we focus back on the Supreme Court case of Thomas versus Clark, April 22nd, 2022. What we know in totality is in the past to maintain such a Fourth Amendment claim under 1983 litigation, a plaintiff must demonstrate, among other things, that they obtained a favorable termination of the underlying criminal prosecution. The primary question that the court analyzed was, what does favorable termination entail? Is it enough for the plaintiff to show only that their criminal prosecution ended without a conviction, or must the plaintiff demonstrate that the prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of their innocence, such as an acquittal or a dismissal, accompanied by a statement from the judge that the evidence was sufficient? To make sense of this whole, let's review the facts of, of the Supreme Court case Thomas Thompson versus Clark. Larry Thompson lived with his fiance, now his wife, and his newborn daughter in Brooklyn apartment. In January 2014, his sister-in-law was also residing in the apartment. In January, the sister-in-law called 911 and claimed that Thompson was sexually abusing his one-week-old daughter. Two EMTs responded but when they arrived at the residence, Thompson denied that anyone had contacted 911. The EMTs returned with four police officers, but Thompson told them that he could not enter, that they could not enter the apartment without a warrant. The police officers entered the apartment and handcuffed Thompson. The EMTs examined the newborn baby and finding red marks on her body, took her to the hospital to be examined. Medical personnel at the hospital determined that the marks were a cause or, or a case of diaper rash and found no signs of abuse. The officers arrested Thompson 
for resisting their entry into the apartment, and he was taken to the local hospital and then to jail. The officers charged Thompson with obstructing governmental administration and resisting arrest. Thompson remained in police custody for two days when a judge released him on his own reconnaissance. Before the matter reached trial, the prosecution moved to dismiss the charges, and the trial judge dismissed the case. The prosecutor did not provide an explanation as to why she sought to dismiss the charges, and the trial judge did not provide an explanation as to why he dismissed the case. Thompson brought suit for damages under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 against the police officers who had arrested and charged him, alleging several constitutional violations, including a Fourth Amendment claim for malicious prosecution, i.e. false arrest. Under Second Circuit precedent, which is New York and Connecticut, to prevail on a claim for malicious prosecution in violation of his Fourth Amendment rights, Thompson was required to show that his criminal prosecution ended not merely without a conviction, but also with some affirmative indication of his innocence. Since Thompson could, not, could offer no explanation as to why the prosecutor moved to dismiss the charges or why the trial judge dismissed the case, he was unable to show that his case ended with an affirmative indication of his innocence. As such, the district court ruled that Thompson's criminal case had not ended with an affirmative indication of his innocence and granted judgment to the defendant officers on that Fourth Amendment claim. On appeal, the United States Supreme Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed the dismissal of Thompson's Fourth Amendment claim. As the various Court of Appeals have split over how to apply the favorable termination requirement for the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution, the United States Supreme Court granted writ of certiorari to resolve the split. And oh, by the way, just to make sure that you understand that, this is usually when the Supreme Court reaches out to deal with the case is when multiple court of appeals across the country start to have some split on decision-making, the Supreme Court's going to reach down and going to clarify that. When determining the elements of a constitutional claim under Section 1983, it is the Supreme Court's practice to look at the elements of the most parallel tort as of 1971 when Section 1983 was enacted. So, so long as doing it is consistent with the values and purpose of the constitutional right at issue, the Supreme Court determined that the most comparable tort to the Fourth Amendment claim is malicious prosecution. The courts have described the elements of malicious prosecution or the malicious prosecution tort as follows. One, the suit of proceeding was instituted without any probable cause. So he was arrested and there's a finding of the finding of probable cause is weak. Number two, the motive in instituting the suit was malicious. So there has to be intentional conduct, which is often defined in the context of within probable cause and for a purpose other than bringing the defendant to justice. And number three, the prosecution terminated in the acquittal or discharge of the accused. The third element of this tort, what constitutes a favorable termination of the underlying dispute, is the focus of the Supreme Court's decision. The Supreme Court found that in reviewing court decisions considering this question, American courts as of 1871 were largely in agreement that the, quote, technical prerequisite is only that the particular prosecution is disposed of in such a manner that it cannot be revived, end quote. So very fancy language, but what does that mean? 
The court found that a a favorable termination can include the dismissal of a matter because it marked an end of the proceeding against the defendant on those charges. Likewise, the court held that the plaintiff could maintain a case for malicious prosecution when a prosecutor abandoned the criminal case or the court dismissed the case without providing a reason. The Supreme Court noted that the treatise of that error agreed that a favorable termination occurred so long as the prosecution ended without conviction. The Supreme Court found that because the American tort law consensus as of 1871 did not require a plaintiff in a malicious prosecution suit to show that his prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of innocence, we similarly construe the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution. The Supreme Court concluded that a Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 for malicious prosecution does not require the plaintiff to show that the criminal prosecution ended with such affirmative indication of innocence. Rather, a plaintiff need only show that the criminal prosecution ended without a conviction. So why is that important? Well, because what you need to know is this is a reduction of the required standards for somebody to sue law enforcement. Not they, the, Basically, they don't have to show much on this second proceeding, which is going to open the doors for more civil lawsuits in the area of criminal or uh, in the area of not criminal, but uh, false arrest or or prosecution, malicious prosecution in this application. So, as such, the Supreme Court reversed the judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and remanded for further proceedings consistent with its opinion. Now, here's the one thing I know, and I want to spend a little bit just to to explain it. I know I just threw a lot of legal terminology at this, uh, of this at you. So let's break it down a little bit more. In its decision, the Supreme Court explicitly stated that it expressed no view on any additional questions that may be relevant to the matter on remand, including whether Thompson was ever seized as a result of the malicious prosecution, whether he was charged without probable cause, and whether the officers were entitled to qualified immunity. What is uncertain is what what this decision means to the future of law enforcement. Will the decision have a chilling effect on the officer's decision to arrest or a prosecutor's willingness to dismiss a case without more, when to do so could result in an increase in malicious prosecution cases? This type of trickle-down effect may not be what the court intended, but it very well may be the end result. During its analysis, the Supreme Court stated that its decision would not affect an officer's protection from unwarranted civil suit, as, among other things, officers are still protected by the requirement that plaintiff need to show the absence of probable cause and by qualified immunity. What various law enforcement agencies understand, however, is that the concept of qualified immunity has become and is currently under attack by legislatures throughout the country. The assurance by the Supreme Court that officers have this option available to them does not necessarily instill confidence amongst law enforcement officers or law enforcement agencies. Now, I want to show a little bit of interesting twist in this case. Judge Alito filed a dissenting opinion in this case, in which he stated, what the court has done is to recognize a novel hybrid claim 
of uncertain scope that has no basis in the Constitution and is almost certain to lead to confusion. Alito further stated that the, cl- the court's claim that the graveman of petitioner's Fourth Amendment claim is, that, is the same as that of a malicious prosecution claim, the wrongful initiation of charges without probable cause. But what the court describes is not a Fourth Amendment violation at all. As explained, the amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, not the unreasonable initiation of charges. Judge Alito concluded that the court's recognition of a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim has no basis in our precedents. So what he says, in my interpretation, and what he is saying is, well, let's see where it goes from here. Because what the key aspect is, is that there may be some concern or some confusion as we move through this application. Now, I want to touch on one more thing before we leave, because I just don't want to leave you hanging with this confusing issue of malicious prosecution without any specific application to what, what we, how we can move forward from this. So let me go back to what I would say in the academy. And when I'm talking to officers in the academy, I, one of the things that I remind them is that we're only dealing with the second prong here of arrest, right? We're only dealing with whether or not the prosecution terminated in favor of the plaintiff. Remember, there are still two more prongs of this application, and, and that's the key part here. The third prong is going to be whether there was probable cause. So my advice to you and what I would say at the academy is split this into two, and that would be what we call warrantless arrests or on-site arrests versus arrests made with a warrant. Now, what you should be taking from this is that warrantless arrests in the aspect of, of making in a warrantless arrest, the, you have the ability to make warrantless arrests when you have probable cause. The challenge for you is going to be that when we deal with warrantless arrests, that the analysis of, of probable cause or a finding of probable cause is something that is going to be way more specific for you as you move forward. Because the only thing that you can bring to the table is the fact that you have found probable cause and nobody else is there to support you. The one thing I want to bring to the table is that there is a difference in the legal analysis of a warrantless arrest versus an arrest made with a warrant. So one of the things that I always recommend to officers is that making an arrest with a warrant, or in a lot of you that are listening might have grand juries or the grand jury finding, making an arrest with probable cause or a finding of probable cause by a prosecutorial entity or a judge is going to be a liability protector for you. And the key to this is I want to just review a little bit of the law as it applies in the aspect of the difference of making an arrest with a warrant and without a warrant. A number of courts have permitted 1983 actions where the arrest does not provide ample probable cause to make an arrest or the arrest is otherwise unreasonable. One of the things that we argue in these cases is that when there is a warrant, or the best argument, it might be argued that where an officer, in fact, knew that they were holding an innocent person with a validly facial warrant, they could be a cause of action. But usually, when we have a situation where there is a valid warrant, the issue is, does the warrant help or even identify probable cause? 
There's a Supreme Court case called Malley versus Briggs. Uh, a different situation is presented where a police officer arrests a person they intend to charge with a crime, and that individual is properly named in a facially valid warrant. But the plaintiff in, argues that there was no probable cause to support the issuance of a warrant. In the case Malley versus Briggs, the Supreme Court held that a police officer will be protected from liability and damages by qualified immunity unless a reasonably well-trained officer in his position would have known that his affidavit failed to establish probable cause. Under such circumstances, the court viewed the application for a warrant as objectively unreasonable and therefore the officer was not entitled to qualified immunity. Malley versus Briggs establishes that even where a warrant is issued in the absence of probable cause, if the officer's mistaken belief that the probable cause existed was reasonable, he will not be liable in damages because of the defense of qualified immunity. On the other hand, if an officer's truthful affidavit in support of a warrant does establish probable cause, the plaintiff will not have a cause of action based on any violation of his Fourth Amendment rights, even if the officer has malicious motives in seeking to arrest the individual. One issue that has been raised concerning such arrests is whether the magistrate's decision to issue a warrant may be said to break the chain of causation so that the officer who sought it should not be held responsible for the illegal arrest. Some courts have adopted this argument. The First Circuit rejected the analysis of Briggs versus Malley, reasoning that the officer's conduct in seeking the warrant was a cause, in fact, of the illegal arrest under a but-for analysis of the causation. The Supreme Court did not reach the issue in Mali, but the court noted that the no causation rationale was inconsistent with its requirement that a 1983 action should be read against the background of a tort liability that makes a man responsible for natural consequences of his actions. The court reasoned that since the common law has recognized that the causal link between the submission of a complaint and an ensuing rest under 1983 should be read as recognizing the same constitutional link. Where an arrest is made under a warrant, but the warrant was secured on the basis of false statements or misleading omissions made by the magistrate by the police officer, uh, made to the magistrate by the police officer, plaintiffs should have a cause of action against these individuals. The one thing I want you to analyze here is that what the law, in my opinion, my advice that I would give you here is that when you're making an on-site arrest, the onus of probable cause is going to be 100% you and the approval by your supervisor. So please, as the law has said, make sure probable cause is, is fact-specific. You know, circumstances that lead a reasonable person to believe that the, this individual reasonably committed the crime. Make sure that you're doing detailed work if you're making an on-site arrest because you got an uphill battle from the point you make the arrest. If you have the chance, and in today's environment, the ability to write a warrant, I believe is going to provide you with an additional level of legal protection. And my argument has always been this, even in the civil litigation side. If an officer writes a warrant and identifies probable cause, the officer is probably the least one in the approval process that actually understands what probable cause is, right? The warrant goes to the supervisor for review. Supervisor has experience and training. I think they know more about what probable cause is. The warrant then goes to the prosecutor's office or the district attorney's office. So I think that clearly flips it 
to the point where the process, I hope the prosecutor has a better knowledge of what probable cause is. And then it goes to a judge and the judge I'm going to go with has a pretty good analysis of what probable cause is. And then the judge signs it. Now, the one thing everybody needs to know here is that when you have, let's just go with an argument that there's four people in the process of putting a warrant together, an officer, a supervisor, a prosecutor, a district attorney, and a judge. The one thing that is interesting is the only one that has real liability in this process is the officer. The judge has absolute immunity. The prosecutor has absolute immunity, which means they cannot be sued. The supervisor has qualified immunity and is usually going to be protected in qualified immunity. The officer also has qualified immunity, but in the analysis of a false arrest claim, I've always said that the one who has the most risk in a false arrest claim is going to be the officer. So remember the holding in this case of Thompson versus Clark, the Supreme Court held for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment claim under Section 1983 litigation for malicious prosecution or false arrest, a plaintiff is not required to show that the criminal prosecution ended with an affirmative indication of innocence. This means the plaintiff need to only show that the prosecution ended without a conviction. That means the bar is set lower. And as I said, we shall see where things go from here. Till next time, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.